for Faith podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. And while it's free to you and offered with love, if you enjoy our content, don't feel shy about making a donation at athoughtfulfaith.org. A couple of bucks will do, and it will go towards keeping the podcast going. If you're making a donation inside the United States, it's also tax deductible. If you'd like to find an online community, then look for a Thoughtful Faith support group on Facebook. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith and A Year of Polygamy Combined podcast. This is the second interview where I pick up from Lindsay Hanson-Parks, initial conversation with author, playwright, poet and screenwriter Carolyn Pearson. Best known for her memoir, Goodbye, I Love You, an account of a mixed orientation marriage to her husband, Gerald Pearson. She's also known for the LDS musical My Turn on Earth and nearly 40 other works. She joins me to discuss her latest book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, Carolyn Pearson. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith. Thank you, Gina. Great to be with you. I I love your mind and I love your heart and I love your voice. So it's a thrill for me to be able to speak with you. Oh, and it's a thrill for me. And I have just concluded the book and I'm filled with it, just absolutely filled with it. It's it's sitting in my soul. So I feel really privileged to be able to have this conversation with you as I process some of my own feelings about this question, this ghost that hangs over many Mormon women. So could I just say, begin by saying how affecting and affirming, but also how saddening in the spellbindingness the book was. I found it triggered a lot of my own experiences and wondering about polygamy. Um, and helped me feel like I wasn't alone. So for that, I, I you know, namaste. It was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for me. Oh, I'm so glad. I certainly felt all those things myself. And, and I knew that there were just unnumbered women and men out there in Mormondom who were feeling these same pains and confusions. So I'm really thrilled that I've been able to connect with already a a number of people who have found it tremendously helpful. And 8,000 respondents to your survey. I think I may have sent in um, something to your, uh, a response to your survey as well, actually. But that's a lot of people who in our small community who are processing somewhat of their concerns about polygamy. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, a lot of people, even those who, who have told themselves that they are not much bothered by it. Once they, you kind of scratch the surface, they realize that, oh boy, there are a lot of feelings there. Right. Now, before we begin talking about polygamy per se, could we discuss something that you refer to later on in the book with respect to romantic love? And here's my question, Carolyn. Why monogamy? My intuition and my heart says that a committed relationship with one person is the most rich, the most valuable, the most sane. And I think that history has shown that that's true. Even today, there are a lot of countries who are trying to get rid of that because it's it has not proven itself to be a productive social family system. And I think there's something in all of us that at least almost all of us, I, I can't say for everyone, but I really think I can say for almost all of us, that there is something that desires a focused, beautiful, heartfelt relationship that can only happen 
when it's a, a private thing between two people who are safe and committed to each other. That, that's just the way I see it. And you talk about depth rather than breadth. And uh, I think if we would, uh, I don't know that I'm up with any great, great love stories that have to do or, or that are based on the necessity of a polygamous or a polyamorous arrangement. The, the stories that move us in movies, in plays, have to do with how two people succeed in finding joy together. And I think having an exclusive relationship one-on-one is key to that. And that's the sense that we get from the experiences of polygamy that many of these people, like victims in this system, that's what they want. They want that peer bond. Oh, I think so. I think everyone yearns for that. So let's let's talk about Joseph. He was somebody who had a significant peer bond, it would appear, with his wife, Emma. Yet he seemed, well, as far as I can tell it, the way I read it is he contaminated that. He made it less than because of his desire to, you know, make it broader than, a, a marriage broader than it was ever meant to be. Oh, I think that was the result. I don't... Uh, I'm sure he didn't have that in mind going into it. And whatever truly attracted him into it will always be um, a a mystery. But I think he did have a a relationship with Emma that was based on romantic love and respect and, and that they were seemingly a good match. And of course, as we know, they eloped because... Emma's father refused Joseph as a suitor a number of times. So they they had enough feeling for one another that they disobeyed the rules and and ran away together. And from everything I can observe, um, they they did have a strong relationship, and she she was fully on board with Joseph's prophetic calling. And then, obviously, obviously, we don't have to conjecture about this, but when, when his polygamous life began, and, and certainly when she knew about it, and we don't know precisely when she knew what, but as she did know for a fact that that was happening, her heart was broken, and she seems to have gone through all the emotions of, uh, of anger and near madness even, and um, trying to figure out how she could maintain. And I think sometimes pretty much deciding I can't, I can't, I can't maintain, but somehow doing that. Uh, but of course, the, the purity of the bond that they had was diluted and polluted and the trust was broken. And whether or not she or anybody else believes that that God insisted that this happen, nevertheless, emotionally and spiritually and relationally, it was, it was devastating. And in many respects, her response was every woman's response, every woman's, every Mormon woman's response to polygamy. Yeah. 
I believe so. And I know you can find stories where um, the women said that that it was just fine with them. But as my friend Leonard Arrington, the, the church historian for 10 years, wrote in his diary, which I quote in the book, that in Utah, um, almost every important man in the church and in society became a, a polygamist. And in, in all of these cases that he knew about, that, that the first wife publicly gave permission, publicly said she was defending polygamy, and then privately despaired. And, and um, that this, this private versus the public stance, I think it did a lot of damage then and I think we might still ha have inherited a certain kind of emotional ambivalence from from the the public face that that Mormon people had to put on in in nineteenth century Utah, especially and, and even earlier in Nauvoo, uh, as opposed to the inner turmoil that was going on. I think sometimes. We hold up that enzyme cover and say everything's fine when it's not. But but that is, I think, the way that that most polygamous arrangements in Utah certainly managed to just slog along. There was no other choice. You point. Sorry, you you point to that in one of the comments that you make, one of the commentaries that you make, uh, that because it was so fear based that you had women standing up for polygamy because they were worried that unless they did, they would lose their place. They would lose their livelihood. They would lose um, you know, their family. Yes, they would lose a lot um, temporarily right here and now. But they, most of them were true, true believers that this was indeed what God wanted them to do and that their eternal exaltation was dependent upon managing to live this sacrifice. And, and I think they did see it as a sacrifice, but one that God wanted them to make for whatever reasons. And so they just buckled down, most of them, and, and, and did the best they could. But it was a harsh, harsh thing emotionally. Mm, and I want to talk about that for a moment. But my thought um, as I'm reading it is that I feel like many Mormon couples and certainly those who responded uh, in your survey, many Mormon couples since have been playing out Emma and Joseph's drama. Well, I'm sure that's true in a variety of ways, some of them very, very subtle ways. But it, it does go back to to that 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 beginning prototype of of that relationship. Yeah, because you, you have Emma's repugnance, and Joseph countering this with some form of uh, scripture or revelation, um, and the only outlet that that gives that gave Emma was to either surrender to it or to lose everything. I mean, that's not a great choice for anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. To lose her place in the eternities and to lose her place with her husband. And uh, it, 
it, it was an impossible choice. And that choice that that, that offers us as Mormon woman um, has echoed through the times. But that choice is constantly played out in our heads, whether or not we choose God. What, we've un- what we're made to understand is just some selfish mortal desire. Oh, yes. And the pain that I read in so many of those stories echo that exact thing, that a, a woman knows what she's feeling. She's, she's clear on what her heart desires and what she needs for, for her psychic survival. And um, to, to be in a place where she really thinks that God has a plan that counteracts that and, and in fact destroys it by taking away this most precious intimate relationship that she has and giving her the, the promise, for, for many, the, the fear that it might happen, but for many, the, the clear expectation because of ceilings that have already taken place. And, you know, it gets very, very complicated. But the, but the upshot of all of this is that so many women feel this, this terrible... Uh, division between what they truly need in their own heart and what they think God wants for them. And boy, I, I, I just can't imagine anything that is really more heartbreaking than that and, and, and brings into focus such a, such a distrust of God. You know, so many times the, these women in their the, the responses to the survey that, that I put out said, if this really, if this really is what God wants for me, then God is a jerk. Or if this really is, is what is in store for me, I'll choose to go to hell. And I have no reason to believe these women were not deadly serious. And the sad, a sad thing is that it's, it's the most orthodox women who experience the most pain those that are a little bit closer to the fringe can find some territory to make a place where they doubt that it's going to come to that or that God even really wants that. And of course, that's, that's the place that I came to because I, I truly was haunted by this, as you read in the book. For many years, and honestly, as a, as a very smart, good BYU student, I wept. Many nights I wept, trying to figure out God's place for women in the plan. Now that whole idea is so, so bizarre and ridiculous, but it was, it was my reality. And then later on, you know, when my whole life kind of fell apart and I, I really had to create a new house of meaning and I just used my own authority to examine everything that I had been taught, everything that I was afraid of, everything that I I had been believing that, that was that came from God and I was I had enough strength to throw away those things that I knew were were hurtful. And and polygamy went. But I continued to see 
a lot and to receive a lot of stories because when I first became uh, somewhat well known in the Mormon community way back when uh, this little volume of poems beginnings was published women began to seek me out and I wasn't necessarily talking about women's issues quote at that time but they found somehow in me somebody who had a voice something that they could confide in and oh I received so many letters from women who were in pain about polygamy and about other um, of the issues that women face in a patriarchal institution. So I, I was well aware that there were many, many women who were experiencing what I think is unconscionable pain over this whole thing. And then as, as, I, as I write, it was you know just a few years ago that I said, well, this has landed in my lap because I am called to see what I can do to address this subject and hopefully to be a healer. There's nothing that I think in this world that is more valuable than to participate in the healing of this human family. And of course you do it with what's in front of you. And, and the, the, the Mormon community, which I love, is the community that was in front of me. And I didn't have to reach over to the Middle East to find women in pain. Uh, this was a different kind of pain, but a, a very intense pain, nevertheless. And, and so I began to become excited that I might be able to find a way to focus on these issues and tell these stories in a way that would move us in a, in a direction of better health in our hearts, in our psyches, in our marriages. And I was, I was so thrilled as I was writing that book. My gosh, it was, it was the most exciting thing I could think of to do. My, my friends could hardly drag me away to, to go to a movie or to do anything because there was nothing that I could enjoy more than sitting here creating this book that I felt and truly believed would be a very important contribution. And it has been. And I wonder, as you talk about healing, if at the center is what is the character of God? Yeah. Like who is God and all of this is God? If God is the one who wishes this for me, how can I love and adore and worship? Right. And that's the dilemma that I was in for so many years. And, and the dilemma that a lot of women expressed. And, and we needed to bring in the pain of men here too, because their, their situation in this is not quite what the situation of women is. But they, there are their own special disadvantages for, you know, for those who, who uh, marry a sealed widow, for example. So, so, so men and women alike have to come to terms with the idea of a God who wants for them something that they in their inmost soul look upon as, as repugnant and ungodly. And, and that kind of conflict within a person is kind of insane. And I think this is a good time, and if you don't mind indulging me for a minute, I did get my husband's, Nathan's, approval to share the story. If you don't mind, can I just share a story? When 
Nathan's my my second husband. Um, I was married very briefly uh, to another person, and when we were dating, he told me this story. While he and he was just off his mission, he was twenty one. He told me this story. He served in Australia uh, on his mission, and for some reason, on his hump day, he became. I think he ran away from his companions because they were going to do all sorts of evils to him. And he was picked up by the ward mission leader who had a daughter. In a series of conversations with between Nathan and the daughter and the ward mission leader, decided that Nathan should marry this girl. Uh, and Nathan said, well, if I'm going to marry her, I think, you know, maybe you need to give me a blessing to confirm that. He bestows the blessing and it gets confirmed that he should marry this girl. So they have this strange sort of, I don't know, one of those revelatory sort of arranged marriages. Anyway, um, he is moved out of the area and he tells his companion who says to him, you need to break that off. I have a really bad feeling if you do not break that, that, that relationship off. It's not right. Uh, and, and within a couple of weeks, the father of this daughter called to say that this girl had passed away. Uh, and then he said to Nathan, but because you were engaged, uh, you can still marry her in the temple. Yes. <laughs> and then... When he's dating me, he says, he said to me one evening, goes, now I just got something to tell you. And, and did that happen? No, it hadn't yet because it hadn't, hadn't been quite a year. When we were dating, it hadn't been quite a year. And when we were dating, he said to me, I need to tell you something. He said, um, he explained the story and he said, and um, I intend to be sealed to her in the temple. We've talked to the temple president and they've said, that's fine. Uh and this was a person that I was considering marrying. You know, I'd fallen in love with him and I was so devastated. I cannot tell you, oh. Carolyn, how devastated I was. I was oh, absolutely I know. I know. This was this was someone who was proposing polygamous marriage to me. I never ever thought that that would happen to me. And I was furious and anyone know who knows me <laughs> knows how furious I can be. I basically said nothing. I said, you're leaving right now. You're leaving. And the next day, I felt as about as close to wanting to die than I ever, ever had. Oh. Uh, and, and largely it was about what God would make me do this. Yes, yes. What God would require this of me. Uh, and then, uh, and I thought, I, I, you know, I just cannot, I couldn't marry this man. I just couldn't. Uh, and then I, then the various people got involved and there were bishops and there were conversations and he was very remorseful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but, you know, the thing is, uh, Carolyn, he was completely unaware mm -hmm. that this would be an issue, just completely unaware. Yeah. And, yeah, that, that does feel naive to us who know how it feels. But, but I, I think that, that men do come at this from a, a, a whole different perspective. Go ahead. Oh, totally. A completely different perspective. But, you know, the thing is, is that, and like a number of these stories that you have shared in this book, I withheld. And so we spent, you know, many of our years, and I could have had the conversations that you talk about, you know, those could have been my conversations with Nathan. 
you know, I will not be a second wife. You will not have, you know, if you intend to be sealed with, to somebody else, you can count me out. I'm not going to be part of that. And so, you know, reading this is part of the healing. Like, I'm not alone in that. My repugnance. And I, ha- I also have to say, in Nathan's, Nathan's um, uh, defense, uh, he's you know, backed right off that now, having thought about it, but nothing in his church experience has ever given him cause to rethink that. Nothing. Only me. And, and that is the travesty. Yeah, and of course, I would love to have him read this book because I personally feel, and a lot of people have felt the same thing, that, that when you lay it all out the way that I have in this book, the only conclusion you can reasonably come to is a huge sigh to say, oh, of course, of course, this was an error from the get-go. We can forgive Brother Joseph as everybody that we've ever called prophet has made errors. We can forgive David in the Bible for, from whom we love the Lord is my shepherd and who did terrible, terrible things. And, and so and all of the, the great names in the Bible sinned against the Lord. So it is my belief that the only way out of this The only way that we don't blame God and the only way that we don't hold this terrible um, resentment that I held against Brother Joseph is to acknowledge that however this played out, it was an error. And my friend, his church historian Leonard Arrington told me several times, his, his phrase for it, was that polygamy was an unintended consequence that was kind of traveling on the same road that the law of adoption was. But that somehow in the law of adoption, it was these young men who didn't have families who were sealed to older men as, as their sons, but no young woman was ever sealed as the daughter. The young women were all sealed as wives. And uh, it, just within this, a couple of years of the, the manifesto, the, the law of adoption was given up as, as a false, a false doctrine. So, to me, it is a great blessing to be able to look at Brother Joseph and say, I honor you for every good thing that you did, the many wonderful things that you put together to create our little corner of Zion that has continued to grow with a lot of pain and a lot of distress in a lot of ways. And and in order for me to feel that kind of warmth for you, Brother Joseph, that I need to be able to say to myself that the whole concept of plural marriage came as some kind of an error that we will never know precisely what went into it. But that's the only way that I can look comfortably at Brother Joseph, whom I admire, and that I can look comfortably at the Mormon community and the Mormon ecclesiastical organization that I admire for so, for so many things. 
Once I get rid of the whole idea and banish the ghost of polygamy, then I can have tremendous more warmth for everything Mormon. But while we, we may individually come to some peace with polygamy as an error, um, the church hasn't, and I say big C church, it's, it's still everywhere and somewhere and nowhere. I, I, I totally understand that. And I know that um, what I'm hoping for will not happen uh, instantly. Will maybe not happen until I'm long gone. But I have, and you know, one of the thing, one of the running themes that I wrote in this book is we are better than this. The Mormon people, men and women, leaders, members are better than to allow this kind of pain and discomfort and confusion to go on for very much longer. Well, can we speculate? Can I? Can we just speculate? What is it about polygamy that it has stayed within our dogma and our theology and our culture? Why do you think when the when the brethren could say, "Look, you know, actually, we need to really confront this business of polygamy," um, but they don't. What What are they holding on to about it, Gina? I think that somehow. It was given such a prominent place from the very earliest days. And Joseph's secretary wrote that Joseph told him this, this was the, the, the most important uh, revelation or doctrine, whatever the word was, to be given to man on this earth. Now, that, that of course, is a, a, a strange, strange thought. But somehow it was enshrined from Joseph's day on as something that was central to the journey of man and, and I, I do primarily here say biological um, man with woman being part of the the man being central and the woman being part of the the auxiliary situation but in order for this this man to create his eternal kingdom with his wives around him that was given such a place of prominence in the theology in this in the the psychic life of Mormons, th those in Nauvoo who were entrusted with this strange godly secret, and then all of those in Utah who listened to Brother Brigham's and, and his his other, um, the, the men that he trusted to, to speak for him. Um, all of the, the, the Mormon people in Utah were given no way out but to believe even if they didn't personally practice they had to believe that this was a central tenet of the restored gospel and if they were not to believe that then they were apostates and that was drilled so deeply into them that i think it's just there now as part of the fabric of the way 
leadership especially thinks about the whole idea of marriage and it 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 continues to have such prominence because there is if you look at it in the way of of the highest um of hierarchy men continue to have this patriarchal privilege and even after the two manifestos um men as we know can continue in the temple to be sealed to more than one woman and that feels to them as a privilege that god has given them and they don't stop to think well women don't have the same privilege why should we have this privilege alone they, they, the configuration does not even make sense to them except that one man and multiple women is is the way if there's going to be more than if, if monogamy is not going to be the, the standard then the only way that it can work is one man and numerous women and many of them have what they believe to be a real spiritual advantage and of course they do and on on this earth they don't have to make the decision do i make an attempt to cancel the sealing to my deceased first wife so that i can marry in to be sealed that that decision never has to be made by them so there is a patriarchal privilege that leaders in the church and men in general have as a heritage from all that happened from brother joseph and all that brother brigham added with his loud loud sermons that that is still remains and, and and nobody's going to want to give that up because it seemingly gives them privilege now i'm hopeful that everybody who reads what i have put out there which is essentially the stories I mean certainly my personal contribution I think is valuable there but these stories that I've put out of today's women and today's men who are in extraordinary pain and disadvantage because of the inequality of today's sealing practices and the ongoing fear and anticipation of polygamy in the next life it's my belief that as these stories are received by people who have power to think about it that they will be able to say wow this has repercussions in what's going on in in the lives of mormon people today that i really didn't know about and this deserves to be studied very very carefully now jean last month i sent a, a two copies of the ghost of eternal polygamy to all of the top authorities of the church uh, one signed to their wife and one signed to them just with my my statement elder so-and-so or president so-and-so with deep appreciation and with a hope that you will help us move toward a future that is truly post polygamy and and I sent uh, the book to all of the, the the women leaders the relief society the young women the primary and it's my hope that there that some of those will be read that others will be given to an assistant and say please read this and tell me if i should think something about it 
I don't know um, how many will make their way their lives. And, and that's not my business. I'm trying to stay very carefully in what is my business. My business is to tell those stories. And my business is to share my personal vision of how things might look when we're a truly post-polygamy Mormon Zion. There, there are two outcomes, I suppose, that people read that and it generates an empathic response because how could it not? Uh, and then the other one is indifferent. And that leads us, I mean, that when, when we try and arouse our church leadership to some kind of consciousness of the effect of a particular doctrine or a theology or a policy on us, you know, one of the hardest things to take is indifference. I know, I know. And and I've, I think this indif indifference would be uh, intensified simply by saying, well, this is the, clearly the way God wants it. If, if, if God didn't want it this way, God would surely tell the leaders. And we know, as we study church history, that things do not work out quite that simply. And, and, I, and I think it, it's, it's important for every member of the church to be able, in whatever way they feel is appropriate or possible, to share their experience, share their observations, share their feelings about what might take us a few steps further on our, our, on our journey to becoming a kind of Zion where there is less pain and more love. Can I just say, one of the things that, as I was reading it, I, I had a lot of thoughts about uh, the relationship between spiritual leadership, I suppose, uh, spiritual and re religious leadership, and we can talk about cult leadership, etc., etc., and sex. Like in many respects, Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith's revelation on polygamy is not out of step with the way in which patriarchal religious leadership often goes that somehow there is a reordering of sexual affairs, there's some kind of scandal involved in it. And you write quite, mm, um, what is it, compassionately about Joseph. Has that pattern and Joseph's repeating that pattern or being part of that pattern occurred to you? That, you know, maybe, just maybe, this is some kind of weird thing that we will always have to, have, have to grapple with. I think we will, we will never be able to put together all of the motivation, all of the, the, the impetus that, that guided Joseph's extraordinary reinvention of matrimony. But I think we can put together some things. I I, I quoted various um, people who are more scholarly than I about what what they they felt, and I I, I quoted um, Dr. Marvin Hill, who was a, a, a professor of history at BYU, and I, I interviewed him. And he said, do you want me to tell you how, what I, how I think polygamy came? 
and and I, I repeat from my diary exactly what I wrote down there that that he says I think that Joseph fell for Fanny Alger and was terribly terribly troubled by that and at the same time he was studying the Old Testament and found that oh well prophets uh, did sometimes have more than one wife I would not have these feelings if it were not a righteous thing because I'm a prophet and I can only feel righteous things and so uh, Dr. Hill suggested that that Joseph put all of that together in his own mind and spirit and came out with what he felt was a validation that that this was something that God not only, not only um, would accept but was urging him to. And I I'm not among those who who can look at it really very simply and say this was just Joseph's ego and sexual desire run amok. I, I think it's much much more complicated than that. Though I think that that all of that must physicality must play a part in this and, and I think there's, there's evidence that it did. But Joseph was in his own way very strongly trying to to wed everybody to him, to, to create his kingdom and a kingdom for everybody else. And, and somehow the way it managed to, to, to fall into his grasp was that, that plural marriage would be a significant part of it. And how much of that he, he really, really felt came from God how much of it he he just sort of was bumbling along with his own feelings? I'll never know. But I cannot look at it well simply as I've said either that it was just totally Joseph's sexual desires run amok, or totally God saying Joseph, here's the most important thing I've just about ever told anybody, and I want you to do it. Take more lives. Somewhere, Joseph came upon something that I think, to him, resonated as, as something spiritually valid. And it got very messy. Very, very messy. You got messy really quick. And I wonder, you know, the light of Joseph's huge compassion and generosity is that he was constantly stretching his soul to accommodate more oh he was voracious just voracious in every direction you can imagine and and i and i think that that is part of mormonism's great uh i suppose cultural or spiritual inheritance that we're a generous people who love people very quickly who accept people into our souls very quickly there is an intimacy that Mormonism arouses uh, in each other. That's the light of it. You know, the darkness, of course, is that his. this isn't often tempered by what you talk about, the necessity for partnership as opposed to patriarchy and the acquisition of these souls into our lives as part of a reward. That's the key thing, I think. The key is that 
instead of organically stretching ourselves to include people in our, in our spirits and, and hold them in our hearts, uh, it, it became conflated with sexuality or, or sex um, and, uh, and, and domination and women becoming rewards. And this is what you're talking about, that emergent theology that comes out of some pressing need that Joseph wanted to include somebody in his life but he but monogamy held him back yep that's that's the result and exactly how that happened it will remain a mystery but that is what happened it often happens though isn't it that i remember i remember teaching a sunday school class of 16 and 17 year olds and they wanted to talk about polygamy and i said well, and Joseph Smith got this revelation that an angel came and, you know, threatened him if he didn't have polygamy, he didn't practice polygamy, that, you know, God would smite him or whatever it was. And the 17-year-old boys in the class all looked at each other, rolled their eyes, and one said, yeah, whatever. <laughs> they were on to it. <laughs> oh, yes, right, of course. And in, in my book, there are a number of stories of, of men saying, when I, when I was a, a teenage boy, I, I thought, ooh, that, this sounds kind of cool. To You know, boy, in the next life, I'll have all, all these women. But when I grew to be a man, and, and I understand about relationships, now that is repugnant, and I do not want any woman ever to feel the way that I know women have, has, have to feel in, in polygamy. So I, I think it's being... It's being more mature, Gina, as, as our spirits become more mature. And I think as our Zion community becomes more mature, we will be able to continue to lay claim to the whole concept of, of, of community and of holding so many people close to us and being there for so many people and yet having very, very clear ideas about what is appropriate for which kind of relationship. And I think as we do mature in this way, it is inevitable that we just let this concept of polygamy fall by the wayside. I, I like the, the image that I created in one part of the book that that patriarchy is spinning silk for its chrysalis and the deconstruction is underway and uh, a, a shell breaks and a bright thing shivers and when the little butterfly of equality of, of real partnership is able to move her wings in Mormon, that the effects will be wonderful and they will be felt far beyond our community because it, across the human family, when, when one blessing comes for one group of people, that somehow ripples over to be a blessing for everyone. And I think when we do come in our little Mormon corner of Zion to be able to dismantle the paradigm of polygamy that is an overlay, a brutal, painful overlay to the general paradigm of 
of patriarchy, then we will be able to examine patriarchy without the lens of, of, of polygamy getting in the way and be able to truly move forward more rapidly in, in creating a Zion where, where we don't all do the same things, but all men and women, every boy and girl, will feel equally important, equally loved, equally equally loved by a divine mother and father who are, who are both equally valued and loved by us. That, that is the vision that I hold. And I want to say one of the things that came out of the book was that something that I hadn't thought about before was the question of Mormon male identity. They're not really understood as men who, you know, are, are equally victimized by this, that they are men who may want to have the depth of a monogamous peer bond, that that may be what they're aching for. But they can never be seen as that because our scripture won't let it and our culture doesn't seem to let them either. But then they're in this, this paradoxical bind that all of today's discourse is, is about monogamy being the Lord's standard for marriage. And then parentheses, except when he says otherwise. <laughs> exactly. And that, that parentheses gets huge. Because we're still, it is in the air that we breathe. The 19th century, or the 19, yes, the 1800s are still in the air that we breathe. That there's something about polygamy that God still believes is the highest order. And somehow we're not able to live that right now because we're not worthy or whatever. But when we get to the next life, we will see that that still is God's highest plan. And, and, and because it is acted out in our temples every day of the week that the temples are open, they, you will find men who are being sealed to their second sealed wife or their third, or sometimes even the fourth. And that is done with the explicit promise that these women will all, that he will claim, claim all of these women as his wives in eternity. So it is being played out right in front of our eyes. And at the same time, we're told that monogamy is the Lord's standard, except when he says otherwise. Now that leads to such confusion in, in the psyches of men and women, that it's, it's really, it, it's amazing to me that our very smart, intelligent, good Mormon community has allowed this kind of confusion to go on for as long as it has gone on. Mm. And that's the, that's the tragedy of it all is the confusion. It's, we're confused over our identity, over God's identity. We're confused over the status of our marriages. We're confused over these the, these identities that we see our husbands, you know, the Mormon sort of prism is, causes us to see our husbands. We're confused over what we're entitled to. There is just so much heartbreak in that confusion. Absolutely. And you brought up... Uh, 
the the male and female divine, yes, which is something that is so precious and so necessary for our souls to feel whole. And as long as we have this idea of polygamy as being God's special form of marriage, and of course it was taught in the 19th century that this is the way God lives. And as long as the, the, the center of our idea of deity is maleness, as long as maleness, both mortal and divine, is the center of the universe and of the heavens, and femaleness orbits around it, as, as, as must happen when there is more than one wife, then our whole idea of God is very skewed. And I think more and more, and in this last general conference, there were a number of times when brethren, and I think possibly the sisters that spoke, referred to our heavenly parents, or sometimes using the, the terms father and mother in heaven. And, and that, is, that is good. But that can't take very many steps forward until we totally exorcise the idea that there is one male God who is the centerpiece of everything, and then there are numerous females that circle around him. That messes up the picture in such a big way that it's, it's really just unacceptable. It's really spiritual abuse for women to have to hold these ideas in their minds and their hearts. Truly, I think it is spiritual abuse. People looking on the outside here may be looking, and I've had various friends who look at me quizzically when I say, oh, yeah, this polygamy thing, it's just it's such a heartbreaker for me. Uh, and they, they look at me like, really? Look, you're an intelligent woman. <laughs> got a PhD why would you even let this have any power in your life it's such rubbish can't you see how what patriarchal rubbish it is yeah. like <laughs> how, how you know I mean it, I mean and you know what I think you know your conclusion of course is that this is an error so what has to happen for women to get to that point where they're able to release it from their bodies and from their spirits and from their hearts um, as a, an error. What, 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 how, do we, how, do we, how can women do this? Well, in general, it requires something that is very difficult for the individual to look at the institution and say, I'm going to trust what I feel inside of me more than what I feel is coming from the institution. And, you know, this tension has played out throughout history as far as we can ever even get back. The, the conflict of interest between the individual and the institution. And, you know, a lot of our heroes in, in history are, are those, Joan of Arc, who, who claimed her own personal power in the face of the institution that said to her, we speak for God and you are wrong. 
And, and something in her said, I cannot live with that. I would rather die. I would rather be burned at the stake than have to feel that because I know it's not true. So we are at a point right now in all in human history where, and, and in our church, where a lot of people are saying, I feel something inside of me that that I'm kind of surprised feeling. And it's a feeling of trust in my own self, in my own connection to deity. And that feeling is so delicious that I can't give it up. I cannot just give myself over to anybody else's authority if it means giving up this this island of, of pure uh, connection to my own soul, my own higher self, my own true connection with God. I cannot give that up. And in a lot of the stories that I that came in from my survey, there was that theme of, of women especially saying, somehow I came to an understanding between me and God that polygamy was wrong and that this is not and never has been the will of God. And when I came to that understanding, this huge weight fell from my shoulders and I could, I could see so many things more clearly and I could feel joy that I had never felt before. And, and Gina, one of the things that I that I hope, and people who read my book, I certainly do not hope or, or believe that any of them would say, oh, Carolyn Pearson says this and this and this, so that must be true. No, but I am inviting them to look at parts of this large story that we have ignored, and then to go inside themselves and connect with their own, their own relationship with truth, their own connection to God and say, wow, how do I feel about this subject now? If I, and and I, I received uh, a, a number of emails from women especially who have said, your book led me to a place where I found this huge burden falling away from my shoulders. And it led me to a place where I'm now able to have conversations with my husband that we could never have had before. So what I'm hoping for is that, that my book will be one of the many catalysts that will encourage hopefully a lot of people and hopefully people in leadership to examine the territory, examine their own feelings, examine how to truly bring the light of God into these dark places and, and create for, for us as Mormon people a new earth and a new heaven because we are better than that. 
we are better than to allow polygamy to be a force of pain and confusion for so many individuals and marriages. I, I know that. In so many ways, as we get to the end of this interview, um, and I got to the end of the book, I just had such a desire to reach out and bless every woman to and to be blessed by my sisters to say, no, polygamy was, it is, and it continues to be wrong. It's repellent to the mother, father, God, who loves us and has seen our suffering because of it, and I release you from it. I release you from it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, Gina. That's that's what I hoped to do in my book. And and I believe that my own personal contribution is part of that happening. And indeed it is. I'm, I've been speaking with Carolyn Pearson, the author of The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, and it's published by Pivot Point Books. It's available in paperback through Amazon. Uh, you don't have a, um, a an electronic version of the book, though. Uh, yes, it, it's on Kindle. Oh, it is. It is. Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> Fortunately, it's on Kindle. Um, and um, I would encourage everybody to read it who has an interest and read it together as couples if this is something that's been haunting you. So thank you very much, Carolyn. I very much appreciate your time. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Many, many blessings to you. Thanks for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith podcast. To discuss this episode with others, please visit athoughtfulfaith.org. And don't forget, if you'd like to support this podcast, please consider a donation. Music for this podcast was generously provided by Challen Hunt and The Lower Lights. Thanks for listening. Hey, Kornada. Yeah.